0: I invite you to take your Bibles again this afternoon and turn to Hebrews chapter 13. We'll continue with the same passage we were looking at this morning, Hebrews 13. We'll look at verses 13 through 16. The sermon is entitled, The City That Is to Come. Listen now to the Word of God. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. This is the word of God. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, just as you breathed forth this word thousands of years ago by the powerful working of your Spirit, so we ask that the Spirit might attend the reading and preaching of your word to us this afternoon, that it might indeed be an effectual means of salvation for us. Would you grant us the illumination of the Spirit, that we might see the glory of of the Lord Jesus Christ and the new covenant that He mediates for us as people. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well we continue this afternoon, beloved, with our look at the book of Hebrews. As we've already noted, Hebrews is a sermon manuscript that was most likely sent to the persecuted church in Rome during the reign of Emperor Claudius, under the threat of persecution from both the Jews and the Romans. Some within the church were being tempted to tempted to abandon the new and living way of worship opened up by the Lord Jesus Christ at His first coming in order to return to the old way, which was centered around the Jerusalem temple, its Levitical priesthood, and its animal sacrifices. The preacher's purpose is to exalt the superiority of the Lord Jesus Christ and the new covenant that Jesus mediates in order to warn His hearers against giving in to that particular temptation to turn back to the old covenant, that old way of worship after the arrival of the new covenant administration is to abandon Christ altogether. So in chapter 13, we see the preacher peppering his hearers uh, with a series of ethical commands in order to encourage the church to persevere in the faith even under the threat of persecution. Besides issuing commands he also reminds his hearers about the divine enablement that they have received through the Son's continuing presence with them in the outpoured Holy Spirit. As he says in chapter 13 in verses 5 through 6, for he said, I will never leave you or forsake you. So we can say confidently, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? This morning we heard the preacher calling his hearers to remember and to imitate those ministers and elders who served them in the past. While such men may come and go in the life of the church, he reminds them in verse 8 that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And with this declaration, he recalls what he taught earlier in chapter 7 and verse 16 about the superiority of the Melchizedekian priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ. There he says, that Jesus Christ has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. In other words, the pattern of old covenant worship and its earthly system at the tabernacle and temple, which was quite literally marked and moved along by death in anticipation of the once for all sacrifice of Christ, has been arrested and replaced by the new covenant pattern which, in light of Christ's once-for-all sacrifice, subsequent resurrection into glory, and ascension into heaven, is marked and moved along by life. The New Testament church need never fear that a wicked priest would hold office over them since Christ has been made their priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The preacher continues by warning his hearers against turning back to that old administration with its special foods and animal sacrifices. And he connects the sacrifices that were given on the Day of Atonement, which were completely incinerated outside the city gate, with the sacrifice of Christ at Golgotha. Jesus thus suffered that we might be nourished spiritually by his grace. That is what the holy foods associated with the old administration of the covenant signified in the first place. They pointed to the need for the spiritual nourishment that Christ became for his people at his first coming. Golgotha is the altar from which we have the right to eat, beloved. And Christ is the sacrifice who has become true food and true drink for us. In our text for this afternoon, the preacher continues with the imagery of Christ's self-sacrifice, teaching that it's the pattern of the Christian life while we make our pilgrimage from the world that now is into the world that's to come. We'll divide our text into three sections, three sections. The first, verse 13, where we see leaving something behind, leaving something behind. The second, verse 14, we see leaving nothing behind. And then the third, Verses 15 through 16, having everything now. Let's start there in the first section, verse 13, leaving something behind. Look again at the text with me. Verse 13 says, Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. The preacher draws a conclusion based upon what he's just taught in verses 11 through 12. Namely, for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Here, as he's done throughout his sermon, the preacher compares the old covenant pattern of worship with the new covenant pattern of worship. In old covenant worship, meat from key sacrifices that were offered on the Day of Atonement was not given to the priests for food, but was completely incinerated outside the camp. And this teaching is connected to the point that the preacher just made in verses 9 through 10, when he warned his hearers against the temptation to turn back to the old covenant pattern of worship with its devotion to special foods. He's making the case that the absence of an altar of sacrifices, and the eating of those sacrifices in New Covenant worship is in no way a disadvantage, but quite the opposite. Just as on the climax of the Old Covenant calendar of holy days, that is the Day of Atonement, the key sacrifices were not physically eaten, but completely incinerated outside the camp, and yet through them… God strengthened the hearts of the faithful by His grace. So, in a similar way, Christ suffered outside the camp in order to sanctify His people by His blood. And so, the preacher's logic, his rationale runs like this. First, he warns his hearers against succumbing to the temptation to return to the old covenant system of worship. We see that in verse 9a. Then, He draws a contrast between having one's heart strengthened by grace in new covenant worship versus being strengthened by the foods of old covenant worship, which can no longer benefit those devoted to them. We see that in verse 9b. Third, he reveals a benefit of new covenant worship which can't be had in old covenant worship after Christ's first coming, namely, the way we by God's grace feed spiritually upon Christ. We see that in verse 10. And then fourth, he connects the old covenant sacrifices given on the Day of Atonement, which were completely incinerated outside the camp with the new covenant sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ outside the gate. Just as those most climactic old covenant sacrifices were not eaten, and yet God used them to feed His people spiritually by His grace, so we see the same with the sacrifice of Christ. Verses 11 through 12. And thus he demonstrates the way the Old Covenant itself anticipates the New Covenant. Though New Covenant worship has no altar and involves no eating of meat from blood sacrifices, that doesn't mean it's inferior to Old Covenant worship in any way. To feed spiritually upon the risen and ascended Christ is far better than any alternative. It's what the old dietary laws were about in the first place, which is why Jesus, again, taught the crowd Whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. But Christ has not only become true food and true drink for our spiritual nourishment, he's also become our example. Earlier in chapter 12 in verses 1 through 2, the preacher appealed to Christ at his first coming in the form of a servant as the greatest example of what it means to live by faith. The Son thus lived according to His humanity, having the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. We see this, for example, every time the text says Jesus went away to pray. And using the metaphor of a race, He commanded His hearers to follow after Jesus, calling Him the founder and perfecter of our faith. And so now He does something very similar Just as Jesus suffered outside the camp when He was crucified at Golgotha, so we ought to go to Him outside the camp and bear the reproach He endured. Again, we must remember the temptation with which the original audience struggled. They were tempted to turn back to the Old Covenant pattern of worship. That Old Covenant pattern involved making regular pilgrimages to Jerusalem, to Jerusalem. I'm sure many of you have heard Brother Lacey Andrews preach on the Psalms of Ascent, making pilgrimage to Jerusalem to worship the Lord God. That was the old covenant pattern. But now, the preacher calls the New Covenant Church to make a final pilgrimage from Jerusalem, leaving it behind The pattern of new covenant worship is not to make pilgrimages to the old Jerusalem to worship God through earthly copies and provisional shadows, but to leave the old Jerusalem behind in order to make pilgrimage into the new Jerusalem, which is heaven itself. But leaving the old Jerusalem behind will come at a cost. Those who leave it behind put put themselves at risk of suffering just the way Jesus suffered and so the preacher tells us here is that when they go to Jesus outside the camp, that is, when they leave the old Jerusalem behind with its old covenant pattern of worship in order to make pilgrimage into the new, they will bear the reproach, that is, the hatred, the hostility that Christ endured. In other words, they will put themselves at risk of violent persecution much like Moses did when he left behind Egypt. As the preacher said back in chapter 11 in verses 24 through 26, by faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward so though they risk great suffering they must leave the old jerusalem behind and persist in their pilgrimages into the new jerusalem in this way the preacher calls his hearers to leave something behind let's look now at verse 14 leaving nothing behind Look at the text. Preacher says for here we have no lasting city but we seek the city that is to come. Though the New Testament church must leave behind the old Jerusalem with its old covenant pattern of worship there's a sense in which it's actually leaving nothing behind at all. The old Jerusalem like the old creation is not lasting. As the preacher said at the beginning of his sermon in chapter 1 in verses 10 through 12, quoting Psalm 102, You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of Your hands. They will perish, but You remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, You will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed, but You are the same, and Your years have no end. The old Jerusalem, like the old creation, has an expiration date. It has a shelf life. And in at least one way, that date has already arrived. Its pattern of worship expired at Jesus' first coming, so that by 70 AD, the Jerusalem temple was destroyed altogether. But in another way, it still awaits its expiration, which will come when the old creation, as the Apostle Peter says, melts away and is replaced by the new at Jesus' second coming. So what's the preacher's point? His point is to contrast the old with the new. The old Jerusalem and the old covenant, like the old creation, is not lasting. The new Jerusalem and the new covenant, like the new creation, is. Christ has inaugurated the new creation In His resurrection from the dead, He is the first fruits of the new creation. And He has ascended into heavenly glory to inhabit the new Jerusalem until the day of His second coming when the glory of that city descends upon the earth, making all things new. We read about this in Revelation chapter 21 and verses 1 through 3. The text says, Then I saw and they will be His people, and God Himself will be with them as their God. We've seen the preacher referring to this lasting city that is to come in various ways throughout his sermon. In chapter 1 in verse 2, as he introduced his sermon, he called the only begotten Son, he called the only begotten Son of God, the heir of all things. Later in chapter 2 and verse 5, he teaches that God has subjected the world that is to come to Jesus. And in chapter 2 and verse 10, he speaks of the Father bringing many adopted sons to glory through the sending of his only begotten Son. Then in chapter 4 and verse 11, he exhorts the church to strive to enter that rest. That is God's eschatological rest, His His consummate, His final rest. In these and many other ways, the preacher describes the glorified life that Christ has won for all who trust in Him. We are assured of our own resurrections. We are assured of our own glorification. Because Christ has already been glorified, raised from the dead and glorified in His humanity. He even uses the metaphor of a city, saying of Abraham in chapter 11 and verse 10, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. That's the new Jerusalem. And in chapter 11, verses 14 through 16, he says, for people who speak thus make it clear they are seeking a homeland, If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to to, to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city, the new Jerusalem, the dwelling place of God. The church is called, beloved, the church is called to leave this old creation behind as it presses on by faith into the new creation that's to come, to leave the city that now is behind as we press into the city that is to come. But we must remember that we're really leaving nothing behind at all, at least nothing of lasting value. Like Moses leaving Egypt We must consider the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. As we leave the old creation behind, we might face much persecution, being faithful to Christ. We might struggle with indwelling sin. We we will struggle with indwelling sin. Our sin will try to drag us back but we must press on by faith, following after the author and perfecter of our faith, the Lord Jesus Christ, pressing in to the city that's to come. Christian missionary Jim Elliott, I think, captured this principle well, the fact that as we press into that, that city that's to come, as we press forward into the new creation As we leave behind the world that now is, we're really leaving nothing behind at all. When he said this, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. I don't know if you've ever had the experience of, surely you have, sitting with people you love, family, friends. And it's so sweet. And all of a sudden it hits you, and you know it can't last. It can't last. One day the kids are going to be grown, they're going to leave the house. One day, mom, dad is going to die, going to bury them. One day, the fellowship I enjoy with my brothers and my sisters will come to an end because people people move around lives change things can't stay the same everything changes in this world and it hurts it hurts to leave behind those sorts of things it's painful But if we're really thinking about those things biblically, if we're really thinking about them in light of the teaching of the book of Hebrews, we ought to know that though it's bitter to consider those things, though death is an enemy, yet, yet, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and He has won for us an eternal inheritance. And when we enter into that eternal inheritance, every joy we experienced in this life will reach its consummate fulfillment in our own lives. As we bask in the glory of the Son of God and we fellowship with one another and we know, we know through the depths of our being nothing will ever change it. Nothing will ever change it. Isn't that a Wonderful thing to have that hope. The author of Hebrews speaks of it as the anchor of the soul in chapter 6 of his sermon. To have that anchor. In this life, the ship gets tossed around on the waves of the sea. But we are anchored to Christ. Christ. We're anchored to the city that's to come, to an unshakable kingdom that doesn't pass away, that doesn't perish. That's our true and and final citizenship. And we should rejoice in that. Press forward into it joyfully, knowing that though it may be bitter to leave some things behind in this world, even our sin, why do we sin, by the way? Because we love it. Because we want to, right? And it hurts. It hurts when we leave behind anything we want or or love, doesn't it? But won't it be wonderful when we enter into that city on the last day and there's nothing but eternal love, no sin, no sin, Can you imagine living in a world where you never have to look over your shoulder and think, does that guy have my best interests in mind? Or is he up to something? We all have those thoughts, thoughts, don't we? Can Can I really trust that person? Now, some of that's wisdom because we know our own hearts. I don't trust my fellow presbyters absolutely because I don't trust myself absolutely. I know my own heart, right? Part of the glory of the city that's to come, the new creation, this unshakable kingdom, part of the glory of the finished work of Christ is that as we enter into that city, as we enter into that new creation, as glorified members of it, we need never distrust anyone again. But there will be nothing but perfect love for God and neighbor there. This is why the holiness, the purity of the church is so important. This is why church discipline is so important. The church ought to be a foretaste of that city to come. The church ought to be The example to the world of the city that's to come as we press into it together. Verses 15 through 16. We get to the third section having everything now, having everything now. Look at verse 15. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Again, we must remember the objection the preacher has just been addressing in this section of his sermon. Apparently, one of the attacks that had been mounted against the New Covenant church by those Jews who who tried to remain under the Old Covenant was that the New Covenant had no altar no sacrifices, no special meat to be consumed during yearly festivals. In other words, they objected to the greater simplicity and lesser outward glory of New Covenant worship. But what they failed to understand is what the Westminster Divines enshrined in Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 7 and verse 6 which says this about the new covenant. Under the gospel, when Christ the substance was exhibited, the ordinances in which this covenant is dispensed or administered are the preaching of the word and the administration of the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, which though fewer in number and administered with more simplicity and less outward glory, Yet in them is held forth in more fullness, evidence and spiritual efficacy to all nations, both Jews and Gentiles, and is called the New Testament. Love, though, we do not bring blood sacrifices into New covenant worship, though we do not feast upon physical flesh and blood that doesn't mean we bring no sacrifices at all. We do bring sacrifices in new covenant worship. We bring spiritual sacrifices. We bring, as the preacher now says, a sacrifice of praise to God. Just as the sacrifices of old covenant worship were to be brought from the fruitfulness of one's labors, he calls these new covenant sacrifices, the fruit of lips that acknowledge His name. This is what Paul means, I think, in Romans 12 and verse 1 when he writes, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy, and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. As we've already noted, Old Covenant worship was marked and moved along by death, both in the blood sacrifices that were offered and in the succession of the Levitical priests. New Covenant worship is different. New Covenant worship is marked and moved along by life. Christ has given Himself once for all, as the single blood sacrifice necessary for the atonement of our sins. And He has risen triumphant over sin and death, ascended into heavenly glory, and poured out the Holy Spirit upon His church. So as we come before the Lord our God, as we make pilgrimage into the new Jerusalem to worship God in the original heavenly holy places as we boldly approach the throne of grace through our great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, we do not come presenting dying sacrifices to the Lord as old covenant worshipers would, but we offer up a living sacrifice, a sacrifice that flows from a heart that's been made alive by the Spirit a sacrifice of praise to God for all that He is and for all that He's done for us in the sending of His Son and Spirit for our salvation. This praise is the fruit of lips that acknowledge His name. In other words, that believe in Him. This is why confessing our faith and, and singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with gusto, so important. Even if we can't necessarily sing well, we should sing with the highest possible affection to God. This is the fruit of lips, right? If the Spirit has been at work in the soil of your heart... If the Word has fallen into that soil and there's fruit coming from it, part of that fruit will be the way we praise the Lord in the gathered assembly, the way we join our voices together in order to sing praise to Him. I had a professor in seminary. I'll never forget, we disagreed on pretty much everything. Um, I went to Dallas Seminary, so uh, you might understand why that's the case. Not everything. I mean, our dispensational brothers, they're still our brothers, you know? But he made a remark once and never forgot it. He said, if I go into a church and I want to know, is the spirit active in the church? He said, one thing I listen for, perhaps the first thing I listen or look for is how do they sing? How do they sing? I'm sure you've borne the grief of being in worship services where a church is dying. You know, it's apparent. It's just nothing. There's no life in the worship. And you can hear it. You can hear it in the way people sing. And that's the result that's the result of the word of God not being faithfully ministered, so that the Spirit might take that word and make it root in the hearts of God's people so that they produce that fruit of praise to God. It's why Paul, in parallel passages in Colossians and Ephesians, in one passage he says, Be filled with the Spirit. In the other, he just describes what it is singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to the Lord, you see. What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? It means to sing with gusto, sing songs of praise. Bring that sacrifice of praise before the Lord. Look at verse 16. He also says, Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So besides bringing a sacrifice of praise to God in worship, we ought also to offer up sacrifices to God in our day-to-day lives as we do good works. I think what we see here in verses 15 and 16 is a kind of… 15 is a focus on the first table of the law, which has to do with love to God, the worship of God's people to Him. And he's thinking about it in terms of what's the new covenant sacrifice associated with those first four commandments. And now he's thinking about it in terms of what's the old covenant… Or pardon me, what's the… What's the uh, New covenant sacrifice related to the second table of the law, the last six commandments. It's focused on love to neighbor. Earlier in chapter 10, in verse 34, the preacher described the persecution that some within the church had already suffered. He said, you joyfully, listen to that. There's that principle. You're not leaving anything behind, right? If you really believe Your citizenship is in heaven and someone comes and takes all you have. You can still respond to that with joy. If you didn't believe that your citizenship was in heaven, you would not respond with joy. He says, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. One of the greatest griefs any of us will ever face is losing a loved one, right? There's a sense in which that is a kind of plundering. It's a kind of plundering of our earthly property. Death is the enemy. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. So when death comes and plunders, our property we can meet it with joy it's another way of saying as we lay on our deathbed if we are in Christ we can look death in the face and know Christ has won though you plunder this earthly property I have a an abiding, a, a far better possession to come. And in the previous verse, he commented or commended his hearers for being partners with those who were so treated, who had had their property plundered. This is the circumstance behind his command to do good and to share what you have. In such situations in which fellow believers have suffered loss through persecution or some unforeseen bitter providence, whatever the case may be, it's the responsibility of his brothers and sisters in the church to do good to him and to share with him. This kind of self-sacrificial love, a love that values souls, over things, a love that values that abiding and last, that lasting possession which is ours in Christ over anything in this, war, in this life, is what Jesus commanded of all His disciples on the night of His betrayal when He said to them this, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, self-sacrifice. This is the night of His betrayal. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another, that love that he spoke of in the same upper room discourse, which lays down its life for its friend. This is a different kind of love than the love of the world. This is a supernatural love given by Christ. This too is one of the living sacrifices of the new covenant. These are the sacrifices offered by the citizens of the new Jerusalem and none other. And so, beloved, we have seen in this text the pattern of the Christian life, and it's a Christ-shaped pattern just as Christ went outside the gate to offer Himself up at Golgotha. So we are called to follow Him there, leaving behind, in the original context, leaving behind the old Jerusalem. But tied to that, and how it would apply more directly to us, leaving behind the old creation that will perish on the last day so we do have to leave something behind and that's bearing our crosses but as we bear our crosses and as we grow in the christian life and become practiced in the in the discipline of self-sacrifice we begin to realize we're really leaving nothing behind At all. This world is fading away. Our lives are fading away. In this world. (laughs) So we're really leaving nothing behind at all. But we're gaining everything. Which is Christ. And knowing that we're gaining everything as we press into that new creation in Christ. We begin to realize that, you know, actually, we already have everything. Paul says this, doesn't he? Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3. How many spiritual blessings have we received in Christ Jesus our Lord? Every spiritual blessing we have them all the spirit has been poured out upon us the spirit indwells us and as we press into that new jerusalem that city that's to come we realize that that's everything christ is all you see it's my prayer for you is that you would continue to press into that city that's to come, looking faithfully to the Lord Jesus Christ, bearing up under the reproach of this world and the grief of that reproach, but doing so with joy. Let's pray. Father, we thank You so much for Your Word. We thank You that You have given Your Word to comfort us, Your people. You are a good Father. You are a tender Father, to the children you love. And we thank you, our Father, that you have been pleased to speak to us, to reveal yourself to us, to save us unto yourself in the sending of your Son and Spirit for us. Father, we pray that you would help us to obey the command that we have heard this evening from the Spirit to leave behind this old creation pressing into the new, offering up sacrifices of praise and good works to you. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.